Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into God's presence with a song. Know that the Lord is God, our maker to whom we belong. We are God's people and the sheep of God's pasture. Enter the gates of the Lord with thanksgiving and the courts with praise. Give thanks and bless God's holy name. Good indeed is the Lord, whose steadfast love is everlasting, whose faithfulness endures from age to age. Please be seated and let us pray. Eternal God, like generations and generations before us, we too gather in the embrace of this sacred place this evening to begin a new academic year here at Princeton Theological Seminary. For we too have heard your call and have come from across this country and from around this globe, and we express our heartfelt gratitude for this opportunity we have been given to study, to serve, to learn, to teach, and to worship, and to grow with one another in this place. O Holy One, we lift our prayers for this seminary community. We lift to you the president, the trustees, the faculty, the administration, and all of the staff, 
we especially lift to you the students who come seeking wisdom, knowledge, and experience. May we strive to be a community where all are welcome, a community where all may thrive. O Creator God, we ask that this seminary may be a place where we can learn to build bridges between differences so that we, in turn, may go forth to serve in a church and a country and a world that is often deeply divided. May we as a community be very honest about who we have been, but may we also develop a deep passion for and commitment to who we may become. And may we not only look inward, but may we also turn our hearts outward into communities that are so in need of love, justice, and grace. Oh God, as we enter into this academic year, we ask now that your spirit move in and through this community this year in wonderful and enriching and challenging and inspiring ways. May our lives and stories be woven together with one another and with you. We lift this year to you, Holy One, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Good afternoon. My name is Craig Barnes, and as president of our seminary, it is my privilege to welcome you all to the beginning of our 211th academic year. Even though the seminary has clearly been having academic years for some time, we do have some new members of our academic community. I want to take a few moments to welcome them. I'm going to ask them to stand and to hold your applause until they have all stood. We welcome to our community the following new faculty members. Dr. Kimberly Wagner, Assistant Professor in Preaching. Dr. Lisa Cleeth, Assistant Professor of Old Testament Studies. Dr. Amelia Kennedy, Assistant Professor of Medieval Christianity. And Dr. Casey Choi, our new Han Professor of Asian American Christianity. Welcome to the faculty. And he did not realize I was going to do this, but um, what are they going to do, fire me at this point? <laughs> I also want to take this opportunity to acknowledge that this year is the beginning of Professor Mark Taylor's 40th year of teaching at Princeton Seminary. Congratulations, Mark. And when you all have been here 40 years, we'll have a special acknowledgement of <laughs> your tenure here as well. In addition to uh, these significant developments on our faculty, affirming those who have been here for some time, those who God has just brought to the community, I also want to acknowledge that this is the first academic year that we have with us the global partners who are a part of the Overseas Ministry Study Center that embedded at Princeton Seminary during the pandemic. So this is the first time we've been able to have 10 of these overseas, uh, uh, these global partners here with us from OMSC at PTS. And in addition to these global partners, we also have some visiting scholars with us who are also a part of the academic community. And if you are either a global partner here with us or a visiting scholar, I would ask you to stand that we might welcome you to our community also. 
In addition to these leaders of the international church and scholars, we also have a significant percentage of our incoming students coming to us from around the world. Due to COVID, many of these international students who have now joined us had to wait two years to get a visa uh, to come, and so they've deferred their dreams of theological education with us for some time. We are in awe of your perseverance and your dedication to learning. 20% of the incoming class of students are international. We are made richer by this fuller expression of the body of Christ. If you are an international student with us, I would invite you to stand at this point as well. We also have um, important new uh, members of the administrative leadership team. Although he's already led us in prayer, it's my privilege to officially welcome the Reverend Dr. John Ha as our new Dean of the Chapel. Welcome, John. <laughs> Dr. Ha is an alumni of, uh, alumnus of the seminary, receiving his MDiv and his PhD in pastoral theology from here. After that, he spent 10 years doing church planting work with a congregation in northern New Jersey that was so successful, the church plant began a church plant uh, under his leadership. But we're honored to have him come and to be actually the first occupant of this new position of Dean of the Chapel. Welcome to your new responsibilities and to your leadership among us. I don't know if he's able to be with us, but also we've brought uh, onto the leadership team a new Chief of uh, Human Relations, our new CHRO, Chief Human Relationship Officer, Tom Chester. Tom, are you uh, with us? Tom's in the back of the balcony. Welcome, Tom. This is also a vice president position, as is the dean of the chapel. Uh, Tom comes to us from uh, leadership in a similar position at Gonzaga University and before that at Penn and at Princeton University, small schools that we've heard of. He's now <laughs> made his way to the seminary, and we are thrilled that God has called you to this leadership position as well. Those of you who are returning students are aware of the fact that Dr. Victor Aloyo, who directed our Office of Multicultural Relations and was very much our Chief Diversity Officer, received a call to serve as the new president of Columbia Theological Seminary. We are thrilled for Victor and for Columbia Seminary, who will receive his leadership. I wanted you to know that we've spent the summer doing careful analysis <clears throat> of this important position uh, and are just about uh, finished with uh, the new position description will be launching, hopefully even this week, a search for a new chief diversity officer. Hopefully this person will be able to join us by the end of this semester. We are honored to have as our convocation speaker today, Dr. Elaine James, who is our associate professor of Old Testament, a position she's held since 2019. Dr. James received her MDiv and PhD from Princeton Seminary. Before coming to us, she served as an associate professor at St. Catharines University in St. Paul, Minnesota. Dr. James is the author of Invitation to Biblical Poetry, as well as to Landscapes of the Song of Songs, Poetry, and Place. We anticipate her convocation address to us entitled, A Word to the Wise. And now let us continue as we hear God's word.
Our scripture reading tonight is from Luke 12, 22 through 34. He said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. 
For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your span of life? If then you are not able to do so small a thing as that, why do you worry about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon and all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And do not keep seeking what you are to eat and what you are to drink, and do not keep worrying. For it is the nations of the world that seek all these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, but it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give alms, Make purses for yourselves that do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The word of God for the people of God. Thank you to President Barnes for the invitation to share a few words with you all at the opening of our academic year. Greetings, Dean Lapsley, my dear colleagues, students, and friends. It is wonderful to see everyone out in their Wednesday finest, isn't it? <laughs> all we need is a red carpet, don't you think? For those of you in the press, I'm wearing Herf Jones academic regalia classic style, vintage 2013, <laughs> with all my own jewels. <laughs> I know, it's hilarious. For students, thinking <laughs> for students thinking of going into academia, a word to the wise. These robes are exactly as light, breathable, and versatile <laughs> as they look. A word to the wise. Who is wise, anyway? The author of the book of James wants to know, who is wise and understanding among you? The book of Job is more interested in the where than the who. Where is wisdom to be found, and where is the place of understanding? Who is wise? Where does wisdom come from? These are timely questions for our moment in the world whose discourse is dominated by threats of authoritarianism, misinformation, and partisanship. They're also timely for our moment in the year as we embark on a new semester. Some of you may be looking around with these very questions in mind. Who is wise? Where does wisdom come from? You may be thinking, I sure thought the answer was Princeton. <laughs> I sure hope she tells us it's Princeton. To be clear, it is definitely in orientation to Old Testament studies. <laughs> but that's mainly thanks to Dr. Lapsley. <laughs> now, there are, of course, competing ideas about wisdom in the ancient world. 
Today, I want to highlight what I see as one neglected thread of discourses about wisdom and the conceptualization of thought and creativity among the biblical texts. That is, that wisdom starts within the body and emerges through labor. Wisdom is like giving birth. Another word to the wise. <laughs> I am going to be talking mainly about poetry and metaphor, spending some time thinking about how ancient poets use their art to work through important intellectual problems. I must therefore beg your patience for moments that might feel they are dwelling overmuch with the details of poems. In doing so, I hope to show you how some of the Bible's poetic imagination connects wisdom and creative power not only to the body that labors, to our bodies, but to the body of the earth, the land that we live in. To set the stage, let me turn to one of the earliest examples of meta-reflection on the sources of thought, speech, and verbal creativity. I'll make the connection back to wisdom at the end, don't worry. In the text attributed to Enheduanna, who was priestess of Nana at Ur around the second millennium BCE, or about 4,000 years ago, we read this. With, it is enough for me, it is too much for me, I have given birth, O exalted lady, to this song for you. The creative act producing a song is understood as a kind of birth. Similarly, here's the colophon to the hymns. The person who bound this tablet together is Enheduanna, my king, something never before created. Did not this one give birth to it? These texts offer us a model, a very ancient model, one of the most ancient ones we have, of human creativity that takes the embodied dimensions of birth as a conceptual model for bringing into the world something new. How does a text, a song, a collection that did not exist before come into being? It is birthed. With these texts associated with Enheduanna, we have a kind of preliminary analogy between the intellective creativity of text making and the physical creativity of conception and birth. We find traces of this way of thinking, linking birth and procreativity with thought in the biblical materials as well. And that's a millennium and more after Enheduanna, of course. And as is so characteristic of our biblical texts, the metaphor is accompanied by a heightened sense of moral ambiguity. What humans might give birth to is not necessarily good. <laughs> our biblical authors are always keyed into that fact, aren't they? In Eliphaz's speech, now I'm going to run through some examples just to give you a sense of what I mean here. In Eliphaz's speech about the wicked in Job 15, the wicked mit holel, they are laboring or writhing in childbirth all their days. The harrowing poem concludes with a reflection that suggests that the womb is the site of intellectual conception. The language here is specifically about birth, which you can see in this translation, for they have conceived mischief, given birth to evil, and their womb has produced deceit. Other biblical texts echo this same language, two of which emphasize more strongly the verbal dimensions of what is conceived in the womb of the wicked. The language is so similar that it seems clear that it represents a fixed concept or a cultural commonplace. The first is in Isaiah 59. They speak lies, are pregnant with trouble, and are birthing evil. The second is Psalm 7. See, he is in labor with evil and pregnant with trouble and gives birth to a lie. In each of these examples, there's a twofold process imagined that begins with pregnancy. The verb in all three texts is hara, if you're following along or taking notes. I know you are. And it culminates in the verbal production envisioned as giving birth, and the verb in all three of these texts is yalad. It is interesting to note, though, that the translations almost universally suppress the bodily dimensions in favor of the disembodied metaphor. As in the NRSV, they conceive mischief and bring forth evil, and their heart prepares deceit. Quite different, right? 
The Hebrew, though, is emphatically embodied. It speaks with and through particular corporeality as its lexicon of both activity and thought. These examples offer a clear paradigm in which thinking is localized in the womb and becomes manifest through birth as speech. In the prophetic poetry, the receipt of a, design, of a divine message is sometimes also cast in terms of labor and birth. Here's Jeremiah 4. Now, if you don't recognize this text, it's because this is very much my own translation. <laughs> Here's what the prophet says. My womb, my womb, I labor. The walls of my heart, it roars within me. My heart, I cannot keep silence, for the sound of the shofar I heard, my insides, the clamor of war. The poem speaks about the necessity of speaking. My heart, I cannot keep silence. Now, who exactly is speaking here? I, I said it was Jeremiah a moment ago, or the prophet, but the speaker is actually unidentified. In some prophetic poetry, this blurring of identities among speakers is to be expected. So is it the prophet, the deity, the personified city? We don't always know. If the speaker here is the personified feminine city, this complements the ancient's gendered logic of conception. The womb of Jerusalem, daughter Zion, writhes with the efforts of labor. But if it is the prophet speaking, then the male speaker expresses turmoil through the somatics of pregnancy, speaking from his womb. Here is a point at which we might note that any treatment of the reproductive body must navigate some complexities in assuming cross-cultured norms. The ancient texts consistently assume that the gendered feminine body gives birth, but the metaphor is profoundly adaptable to a male speaker, a male body who conceives and births. Queer and trans readings might play with just such dimensions. But you have to see them first, right? In your English translations, you can't even see it. It's a little plug for Hebrew there, my friends. <laughs> what is thematized in the poem is the emergence of verbal expression. I cannot keep silent. Where does this need to speak come from? It emerges from a space of bodily interiority, indicated by several terms for internal organs. First and foremost, it comes through may I, which I've translated my womb, though the translations usually don't acknowledge that dimension. The text also notes the pounding heart and the nefesh, the gullet, the throat, or the insides. I translated insides a moment ago. Not probably soul, the more common translation. This speech does not come through the poet's volition. Instead, it comes through some kind of irrepressible energy. It roars within. Roaring in this text is something that happens to me or within me in which the self is both agent and object, acting in a response that exceeds volition. Similarly, in Song of Songs 5-4, the young woman describes her erotic response to her lover's hand. Now, again, those of you who've studied Hebrew know hand can be a euphemism. <laughs> the response to the beloved is also described as a kind of animal rumbling, using that same language. My womb roared for him. I fully recognize, by the way, how awkward that translation sounds. <laughs> Though who among us hasn't written my womb roars for you in a Valentine's Day card? <laughs> if you haven't done it yet, maybe this is your year. <laughs> but my womb roared for him suffices to indicate the kind of physical internal turmoil that characterizes sexual response, yearning or orgasm or both, that both belongs to and somehow also exceeds subjective interiority and agency. Pain, too, is a, was within the scope of this somatic blurring of agent and object, as the metaphorical use of the phrase for suffering also suggests. 
In a few cases, the womb is linked with aesthetic creativity. In Isaiah 16, the contractions of the womb are associated with music. Therefore, my womb for Moab throbs like a harp. This music is a sympathetic replacement for the music that's no longer heard in devastated Moab, where rejoicing and gladness are gone from the land. In the vineyards, no celebrating and no joyful cry. The womb mourns, and it is also a source of song. Perhaps it is not a stretch to think it is a reflection on the source of the lament poem itself. A lament song come to birth. For those of you who are poets, creators, musicians, artists, preachers, you might resonate with this language that to create both involves and exceeds our agency. It is like giving birth. Now, this link between textuality and pregnancy is also a conscious subject in a cool little narrative in Isaiah 8. Here it is. Then the Lord said to me, take a large tablet and write on it in common characters belonging to Maher Shalal Hashbaz and have it attested for me by reliable witnesses, the priests Uriah and Zechariah, son of Jeberechiah. And I went to the female prophet, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Name him Maher Shalal Hashbaz, for before the child knows how to call my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away by the king of Assyria. Here there's a striking association, an explicit one, between a pregnant body and a written text. Some scholars have seen this as an enshrining of male textual authority over against the passive female womb. Male writes slash impregnates, female receives slash incubates. As Hindi Nyman writes, as, quote, as prophet the male inscribes his message for the future through the process of impregnating the presumably passive woman with his message, end quote. In my view, Nyman has forgotten that there are two prophets in this text. The female body that becomes pregnant and bears the child is Hanaviah, the prophet, which means she herself is receiving divine messages, just as Isaiah, the second prophet, is. Moreover, note that what Isaiah inscribes is not actually a message. Only after the unnamed female prophet conceives and bears a son does the deity reveal the meaning, name him Maher Shalal Hashbaz, a bit of a mouthful, along with a prediction of, a serious, of Assyrian onslaught. So, until the prophet herself births the child, which is the defining moment that instigates the knowledge of the text, Isaiah doesn't know what the text means. It is not knowledge. It's not yet knowledge. It's certainly not his knowledge. I suggest instead that each of the prophets has that same relationship to the received message. Isaiah receives and produces a textual message. The unnamed female prophet conceives and produces a symbolic human message. The knowledge contained in these messages is the same. And when it is revealed, the child slash message might equally appeal to my father or my mother, which language seems all the more now salient. If anything, Isaiah 8 confirms the ambivalence implicit in the paradigm of pregnancy and birth. It is both a product of human agency and it is beyond human grasp and power. In each case, it comes from within the body. And in each case, somehow, it is also divine. That the womb is not passive, but has an active, agential role in creation is a topic of some you know, debate in the ancient world, but there are glimpses of this, and it's clear in a number of places uh, in the biblical text, but I will note here only one. I'm gonna save you from a lot more examples. This is a good one in Genesis 4. Here, Eve provocatively asserts her role in the birth of her son, Cain. She says, I have created a man with God. Note that Eve effectively downplays the male role here, even while the narrator tells us that Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived and bore Cain. 
while also emphasizing Eve's co-agency with God. According to the biblical materials, procreation is within human power and also exceeds it. It is difficult for me to talk about these things without acknowledging our contemporary context, specifically in the wake of the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. Pro-life listeners will key in, no doubt, to the fact that the biblical materials are resolute and complex in their sense that procreation links human fertility with the expansive fertility of the earth and with divine purposes. But let me be clear. The biblical texts are as equally resolute and complex in their recognition of the necessity for wise intervention and the adjudication of justice, recognizing both our agency and our responsibilities to one another, especially to the vulnerable, including vulnerable pregnant people among us. It is not at all my intention to solve this issue here, but I can't not acknowledge it. The power of the metaphor is in its ability to describe a profound mystery at the center of all forms of creation. Some of you prefer to think more about modern contexts, and so I would gesture to some parallels with Hannah Arendt's notion of natality, that creative force by which we all come uniquely into the world, through which we also create. And this is one that has been so central to women's experiences throughout time, and as my talk here tries to convince you, has been mostly written out of our biblical translations. In a few of the examples I've selected, and there are more, but again, we only have so much time, but talk to me later. <laughs> the textual evidence has shown that thought and speech can be imagined as being birthed from human interiority. So here at the end, I want to turn to one more text that also features birth and that reintroduces our initial question about wisdom. In Proverbs 8, primordial creation is linked with the creation of wisdom, who is personified as a woman. Here, a few selected lines from this lengthy poem. Does not wisdom call, and does not understanding raise her voice? To you, O people, I call, says wisdom, and my cry is to all that live. I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently find me. The Lord conceived me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of long ago. Ages ago, I was set up at the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was birthed. Before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was birthed. When he had not met yet made earth and fields or the world's first bits of soil, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above. A close reading of this text that attends to gestation, birth, and speech helps to build up an answer to these questions. Who is wise and where does wisdom come from? The first thing to note is that wisdom comes into being through procreation. Here is the opening line of her speech. The Lord conceived me at the beginning of his paths. When there were no deeps, I was birthed. We have here these verbs of labor and birth that we've been talking about. So God acts maternally, bringing wisdom into the world through the labor of childbirth. Like in Psalm 139 and Job 10, both of which use the verb to weave to describe the growth of a person in the depths of the earth, Proverbs 8.23 might rightly be translated, I, wisdom, was woven in the womb from the beginning, from the earth's founding. Notice the link between the womb that gestates and the earth that gestates. And notice, too, the link between wisdom that becomes manifest as speech and the human person. Wisdom is that which is being birthed. 
The birth of wisdom in Proverbs 8 is clarified through the geographical movement of the text, which offers a spatial paradigm of emergence. It begins in the depths of the earth, to springs that lead to the earth's surface, to mountains and hills, to fields and lands on the earth's surface and those bits of soil, and upwards towards sky and horizon. Wisdom moves from what is beneath the surface invisible to what is manifest and perceptible. There is a cumulative movement toward what is available for human use and production, arable land. The link to farmland, valued especially for its ability with human help in the ancient world, so too today, to produce food, is also significant for the ultimate manifestation of wisdom's presence, the summons to feast. Wisdom's emergence will culminate in a verbal invitation to take into the body what she provides. Come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Who is wise? Well, personified wisdom herself. But then so are we, if we are wise enough to listen, to speak wisely, to eat her fruit. And where does wisdom come from? from some primordial deeps, from the earth itself, from God, and from the womb, from within the person. Do these answers seem vague or contradictory or difficult to grasp? They are. You can go look at the literature if you want, but there are, you can also just trust me on this one, there are as many theories about who wisdom is and where she comes from as there are scholars thinking about it. This poem is wonderfully open. It's about a lot of things. And I suggest that one thing going on here is that the poet is working with a philosophical problem, one that we might call the problem of mind. And the point is not necessarily to offer us a neatly worked out paradigm. Instead, the poet draws us into this elusive gestural reality in which we see how wisdom is woven into the very universe and somehow also consistently emerges as a voice that calls to us. Wisdom cries out, calls, gives voice, speaks, and utters. This is most remarkable in Proverbs 8, 4 through 11, where in eight verses, 10 words refer to her speech. In conjoining these motifs, the creation of the world, human conception, the emergence of wisdom and speech, Proverbs 8 highlights their shared features. The emergence from unseen origins, from a place of incubation, into the world of human perception, where wisdom becomes manifest as and through speech. For these reasons, I suggest that the language of creation as birth can be understood as a language for thinking about thinking, or metacognition. The striking personification of Proverbs 8 might be thought of as a way of addressing a fundamental mystery of human creativity. How does the mind create? While dwelling with the rich strangeness of poetry is its own reward, it can also be disorienting. So let me now suggest a couple of implications to reorient us. How, um, two implications of this way of thinking to reorient us, now that I'm lost in my own sentence. <laughs> that I hope I have perhaps persuaded you are underappreciated features of some biblical ideas about wisdom, thought, and creativity. Here's the first one. Wisdom is embodied. It somehow comes from the body and also from beyond it. It is both within our agency and it exceeds our control. What would change for us if we took seriously the gestation that we are doing? Knowledge is not just out there for us to find. It is in here for us to make. We you, this academic year, are not merely here to receive knowledge as if you were some passive container. Remind yourself of this on days when it might feel like it. You are here to do a labor of divine collaboration. 
You might ask yourself with the prophet Jeremiah, what is the message that makes you say, my heart, I cannot keep silent? What will you give birth to? My second implication. <laughs> Wisdom is what links our own generativity with the generativity of the world around us. We see this all over in Proverbs 8. We are not alone. The earth, like a womb, is a source of mysterious and excessive fecundity. What the earth produces is wild, innovative, endlessly creative, responding to external forces and creating ever new possibilities. It is wise. What if we treated every corner of land, and we know that it's threatened by our exploitation and our carelessness, as a site of sacred generative potential, just as we ourselves are? Instead of an inert piece of lawn and pavement to stage our human drama, what would change if we honored the generative potential of a piece of land as small as own, our own yard, as seemingly insignificant as a churchyard or a parking lot? the soil in a clay pot on our balconies? Could we begin to understand its wisdom? Could we see it with the imagination of the poet of Proverbs 8, holding endless potential to call to us, to demand that we listen, that we care, to understand on a deep level that what we eat is its fruit? That what we eat is wisdom's fruit, and I mean what we eat, what you put in your mouth, is divine wisdom. <laughs> this places a charge on us, doesn't it, to foster the Earth's ability to nurture other life forms in both biological richness and aesthetic potential. My assumption is that wisdom mixes good wine, but <laughs> I don't think she would mix bad wine. What would our campus quad look like, seen with the kind of poetic imagination of our biblical authors? A space to express and facilitate creativity, the meeting of people within and beyond our community who might find respite in a beautiful place. The fostering of the life of the biotic community that Proverbs 8 reminds us extends so far beyond us, from the watery depths to the foundations of the mountains, to the fields and their soil and all the creatures they support and upwards into the sky. If we saw with this vision of wisdom interwoven in creation, we would not be able to deny that our well-being is tied up in the well-being of all these others. Hildegard of Bingen, whose words we will sing shortly, talks about this as the greening of the Holy Spirit the source of the grain that comes from Earth's womb, that's Hildegard's language too, is the very same sap of life that moves and makes life in us. Such thinking gives a glimmer of hope, of joy, of hospitality, and of wisdom to a community beyond our individual selves. Who is wise? Where does wisdom come from? Well, we don't really know. It is a sacred, silent mystery. Something we do and something God does in us. A word to the wise. We won't know it until you give it birth. Amen.
Friends, following the benediction, we invite you to recess silently behind the faculty and then join us on the steps of the chapel for some moments of fellowship. Now hear these words of blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make her face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up their countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.